And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everyone. Well, the COVID-19 stay-at-home is into its first month here at Solidarity Breakfast. Already some of the capitalists are losing their puff. They're already saying the economy is more important than health and touting the idea that Herd immunity is the best policy. That is, let the chips fall where they may in a black death sort of way, Uh, as if we had no understanding of how viruses are transmitted and that us peons and the old should just suck it up if we get sick. Others are seeing it as an opportunity to slash wages and conditions and take more power to the employers by getting rid of unfair dismissal laws, getting the Fair Work Commission stamp of approval to not paying redundancy, and for the household name sanitarium, the chance to ram through an unfair new EBA. There you go. Who would have thought that a virus would make it so much more important uh, to get rid of workers' rights? Anyway, today I thought I would concentrate on some things that have slipped from people's attention because of COVID-19, something that is centre stage because of COVID-19 and a union response offering a different economic model to the one the business-focused federal government is pushing. So first up is the issue of waste management more particularly incinerators, as an answer with the mantra waste to energy, the idea that you could burn uh, waste at a high uh, temperature to generate electricity. And doesn't that sound wonderful? Remember, just before COVID-19 hit, there was talk of creating a huge incinerator as a waste management solution in one of the local Melbourne suburbs. Uh, The community wasn't that much uh, for it, (laughs) But there you go. Well, actually, the incinerator industry has been busy pushing the idea all across the country. There is a lot wrong with uh, incinerators. Uh, And um, we were lucky enough to have a chat with Dr Paul Connett, a former chemistry lecturer who is a proponent of the zero waste movement. He had come to Australia to talk down incinerators in particular, but had to hurry home to the US before they closed the borders because of COVID-19. But I rang him up. Waste management is one of the weaknesses of the system that we live under. And of course, it's one of the sort of things that people like to literally brush under the carpet. But at the moment, (laughs) it's become so centre stage. The thing about Australia is that we're always behind behind, uh, because incineration has come up as something, as a solution to a major waste problem, especially in Melbourne recently, uh, at a local government level. Uh, But 
actually, it's already been shown to be have major problems, hasn't it, in other places? Well, waste waste is the evidence that we're doing something wrong. That's right. And we the the thing we've done wrong for many years, over a hundred years, is to dump everything into a hole in the ground. And often this leads panicking politicians, usually lazy politicians and sometimes corrupt politicians to look for a quick fix. And the quick fix is incineration, they think. Actually, it's not a quick fix. It doesn't solve the problem. And uh, it certainly doesn't take us in a sustainable direction. And so the, the zero waste message, instead of saying, let's get rid of waste, we have to say, stop making waste or to put it another way the community has to say to industry if we can't reuse it if we can't recycle it if we can't compost it then you guys shouldn't be making it and some people say zero waste is a design issue we have to design waste out of the system waste is a human invention it's bad industrial design nature makes no waste so our civilization has to look at how nature handles materials and see if we can be as clever as nature. But um, unfortunately, if you start building incinerators all over Australia, which is the current plan, it seems, um, then you're going to waste at least 25 years. And sadly, people are being deceived because the way it's presented, waste to energy we can come back to that in a moment. Actually, incinerators are a waste of energy, and I'll explain why in a moment. But it, people think when they hear that term, waste to energy, oh, some clever corporation wants our waste so they can make electricity. And yes, you can have our waste and give us electricity, but what they don't understand is that very little of the income of an incinerator comes from the sale of electricity. Maybe a, less than a quarter of the income comes from the sale of electricity. So where does the other three quarters come from? Answer, it comes from the tipping fee. It comes from what the communities have to pay per ton of waste delivered to the facility. Your truck full of waste goes over a scale. And for every ton you deliver, you have to pay. And the, the way they construct the contracts is it's usually a put or pay contract. You, you pledge, your community pledges to deliver so many tons a day or week or year. And if you don't deliver it, you still have to, have to pay. So you can see what a gigantic problem this is. That's like uh, the war industry, isn't it? You have to keep yeah. having war. Yeah, that's right. You have to keep making waste. And uh, any chance, any notion of a better solution, i.e. recycling, reuse, repair, um, banning certain materials, uh, all of those go out of the window if you have to keep feeding this monster. But it's, it's this hidden taxation. That's what it is. It's a hidden taxation. People don't understand that... Whilst the environmentalists are very concerned, rightly, about what's coming out of the stack, and therefore they, they focus on the environmental impact statements and the health risk assessment, the real game in town is those politicians getting the signatures of communities, getting communities to sign up 
to pledge to support. It takes you at least 25 years. It takes at least 25 years for the community to pay for this thing. And you don't get rid of landfills for at least you for every four tons of waste that you burn, you get at least one ton of ash, which has to be landfilled. We have massive landfills in the United States, which are only dedicated to the ash from incinerators. So you're not getting rid of landfills. And this is what concerns me in the 21st century. You're not moving any closer to sustainability. Most people in Europe are now, the European Parliament is talking about moving from a linear economy to a circular economy. Well, the, the, the block of that is incineration. Incineration perpetuates the linear economy. And I should explain what I mean by the linear economy. The linear economy takes resources, digs up raw materials, ships them halfway around the world, manufactures products, and then those products are consumed, I would say over-consumed, and in a relatively short time, you produce waste. That's the linear system. Extraction, manufacture, consumption, and waste. And if you build incinerators and burn that waste, everything you burn, you have to go right the way back to the beginning and start all over again. More raw materials, more transport around the world, more manufacture. And the only way you can get off this linear economy and move to the circular economy is by reusing objects, recycling materials, composting the organics. And if we can't reuse it, if we can't recycle it, if we can't compost it, we shouldn't be making it. That's where the better design comes in. And another issue which I'm sure you're very familiar with and exercised about is the dumping of plastics into our oceans, more plastic than fish in a few years. Um, this has shocked the world, what this plastic is doing uh, to wildlife, to the fish, the mammals and the seabirds and so on, but also what it's going to do to us with these microplastics, microparticles of plastics in our food, food chain. Well, the oil industry is continuing to make all this plastic. In fact, the oil industry is planning to make much more plastic. And what they're doing is they're preying on countries in the south, particularly low-income, poor communities. You know, instead of getting a bottle of shampoo, which will last for a month, you get little plastic sachets of shampoo and little plastic sachets. Um, and... Poor people can afford those little little daily or weekly quantities, but they all are ending up in the sea. They're all part of this problem. That's what I call bad industrial design. And, you know, I do a lot of traveling on this issue. And recently I was in Indonesia. And one of the NGOs there, they had a whole section in their office for, for the public to come to and it was a demonstration it was a demonstration of pumps little hand pumps a little hand pump on top of a liter bottle so they had all the brand names of shampoos and detergents and also the generic brands in these disposing containers 
one liter, one liter of those disposing uh, containers, dispensing containers, is equivalent to a thousand plastic sachets. Mm. So any community, and, and I've worked out of work in small communities like the barangays in the Philippines, if you can get the small community to have one of these or one or two of these in their small community that people can share, then it would, this very simple way of keeping all these plastic sachets out of the sea. But meanwhile, we have to support all these bans on single-use plastics. And it's happening all over the world, the banning of plastic straws, plastic cups, plastic plates, plastic utensils, plastic bags, plastic, you name it. We have far too much plastic. It's good for the oil industry, but it's a disaster for the oceans. You've recently been part of an advisory group for for Rome, right, around zero waste, because it occurs to me that... uh, individuals behavior is important but we're talking about multinationals who affect legislation so if you're dealing with a a city as big as rome can you tell me a little bit about how that came about and how the legislative process happened yes well these are this is a very very good question and it's a i think a, a very interesting bit of history here much to everybody's amazement Italy is leading the world and certainly leading Europe in zero waste. In, um, in Italy, you've got over 300 communities which have now declared a zero waste strategy. Meanwhile, over 2,000 communities are getting over 70% diversion from landfill. 70% diversion from landfill using reuse, recycling, composting and so on. Over a thousand communities are over eighty percent, and a hundred or so are over ninety percent. So they're doing a fantastic job in Italy. And let me explain what Italy is. Italy, I've been there eighty-four times now. Italy is a country of five or six very famous cities, which everybody knows. You know, Venice and Florence and Rome and so on. But it really is a country of 9,000 communities, 9,000 fairly small communities. And each community takes a pride in its food, in its olive oil, in its wine, in its history, in its culture. And they love zero waste. It fits in with slow food. It's These are our resources. You're not going to burn them. You're not going to take them from. We want to reuse these resources. And we want to create local jobs. And we want to have local businesses developed around this solution. I'm not saying this came overnight, but it came rather quickly um, over a few years because the zero waste movement in Italy grew out of the anti-incineration movement. There was a time in Italy where the government required utilities to buy energy, electricity from incinerators at three times the rate that they paid for uh, fossil fuels. And this was uh, the, the idea of this law was a good one. It was to get to get away from nuclear uh, nuclear power uh, and to get away from fossil fuels. But it was adopted by the waste industry to get a much higher dividend from building incinerators. But fortunately, the Italians did not fall for this. 
they stopped many, many incinerators from being built. And this in turn morphed into the zero waste movement. And when Rome essentially adopted zero waste um, at the end of the year before last, we had an international um, group invited to go there and uh, help them with this decision and give them advice and so on. Um, it's not easy. I must tell you, doing it in Rome is not easy, but the, this, it's a daunting prospect to take a, a city of three or four million people and try to get to achieve what you do, what can do in, in a, a, a community of 10,000, 20,000, 150,000 and so on. I should say one province in Italy, one million Treviso province is 88%. Think of that, over a million people, 88% diversion. And we have San Francisco at 80% diversion. That's a city of 850,000. So one of the things you have to do in a big city is to try to divide it up into the villages it once was. You know, most cities have grown out of encroaching on little villages, little towns, which have become this great conglomeration. Rome has the advantage. A large part of Rome is restricted, I think it's to five stories. So you don't have all those skyscrapers that you have in a city like New York or even Milan. Um, so it's you're still dealing with relatively easy to organize smaller communities. And that's the way to do it, to recreate the village within the in the city as part of the the way of approaching this. Uh, and another thing I would point out that Italy has been terrific with is um, taking on board the notion of a zero waste research center to have a center devoted to examining, first of all, the residuals. I mean, you, you know that every community can recycle and reuse and compost and composting is key. The composting for a hot climate, that's about 50%, over 50% of your waste is organic. So if you compost, that's the first thing to do. But then with uh, recycling, you can get this to 70, maybe 80%. Another thing is the pay-by-bag system for the residuals. So in the, in the system where you have three-way split, one container for the residuals, one for the recyclables, one for the compostables, the compostables and residuals are taken with no surcharge, but the residuals, the more you make, the more you pay. And in one community in Italy, the residuals go into special bags with a microchip in it, um, but you only pay when you put it out. They collect it once a week, but you don't have to put it out once a week. So people that are careful about what they purchase are only putting it out once a month and, and saving quite a bit of money with this system. But to go back to this initiative in Italy, the Zero Waste Research Center, which is to recruit local professors, professors from universities with activists in the community to examine what the residual fraction is, see if it, these residuals are necessary. I'll mention a couple of things, which, which well, three things which sprang from this. When they examined the residuals, the first thing they found is a very big fraction of the residuals were leather and textiles, leather and textiles. And so they started to collect those separately and are looking for uses for those, you know, making small 
cases and leather pouches and so on. And then secondly, the, the 14%, number two in there was disposable diapers, ah, nappies. Yes. So they got local manufacturers to make reusable uh, nappies and the local pharmacies and supermarkets give the first disposal, I'm sorry, reusable diaper for free to the new families to encourage them to do this. So that's important. And another thing that they found in there was these wretched plastic coffee capsules, you know, the single-use coffee capsule. You put it into a machine, you push a button, and it makes a perfectly reproducible cup of coffee, high quality. And um, there are different brands out there. Lavasso is the one in Italy, and there's Keurig in, in Europe and, and America. Anyway, thousands of these plastic capsules were in the residual fraction. And the guy that heads up the zero waste movement in this community of Capanari, which was the first community in Italy to go zero waste in 2007, and he wrote to Lavasa and said, look, we are a, a community. We are trying to go zero waste. We're up to 83% diversion. We're looking at the residual fraction, and we're finding thousands of your coffee capsules. What can you do about it? What can you do about it? Well, within two days, they got a phone call from Lavasa. And this is a community of about 150,000. So if you want to know... Do, do corporations listen? Yes, they do. They're worried about their image. And they, they phoned up and said, look, we'd like your experts to meet with our experts and see if we can come up with some alternatives. <laughs> and to cut a long story short, this is over a period of a few years. There are now compostable capsules. There are recyclable capsules. I don't like those recyclable ones. They're a darn nuisance to clean out. But there are reusable ones. And I have a coffee machine which I got in the United States. It's not expensive. It's about 50 bucks. And it makes a perfect cup of coffee, totally reproducible, using the same device which accepts the single-use capsule. Instead, it is a sort of metal filter, stainless steel filter, whatever, I put two spoonfuls of loose coffee in that, and it makes as good a cup of coffee as the other kind. And I am a very happy camper. I've been using this for over a year, and I've literally kept hundreds of these coffee capsules out of the um, of the landfill. Uh, so these are simple examples. They're very simple examples uh, that. that Everybody can do and every community can do. We just need a bit of creativity, um, good leadership. We need good leadership, particularly at the local level. We need, as I say, creativity. We need children involved. You know, we need children to learn about composting in schools. I'd like the biology teachers to use the compost pile as a wonderful ecosystem. They could study this from a biological point of view, the worms, the all those bugs and things in there, beautiful ecosystem. And secondly, they could use it as a chemistry thing because they could take these so-called um, uh, biodegradable plastics. They could put the biodegradable plastic in the compost pile and, and see how long it takes to biodegrade, if it ever biodegrades. So there's some wonderful experiments 
that teachers can do. And we need those kids involved from the early start. And another thing, you know, it'd be wonderful to get kids involved in public service. So why not train our kids to become master composters and who, who, who with supervision and maybe in pairs go out door to door in the community and say, look, our council is giving a subsidized composting kit that you use in your backyard. And if you like, I'd like to show you how to do this and be your troubleshooter. Would you like me to do that? Well, the parents would be very thrilled to to see their kids doing that. And it's just introducing them to public service. And I think they'd enjoy it. They're doing something. You know, it's it's action. And that's a big thing. That's the big thing about Italy. It changed the politics of Italy. This whole zero waste movement, the Cinque Stella movement, the five star movement began with one sentence. Not many people know this. Not many people know this. But there was a comedian on television who said the wrong thing. He, chucked, he was chucked off television. He went around the country doing his humorous acts. He attracted thousands of people. And then he mixed, he mixed science with humor. And he was getting experts like me to come in and say why incineration was bad and why zero waste was the solution. Other people talked about alternative energy. Other people talked about not privatizing the water supply and preventing huge transport systems going through their communities and so on. Anyway, this attracted a lot of young people, uh, people who were IT savvy. And he, he had a very popular blog. And they formed this group called Friends of the Man's Name. I'll give you his name in a moment. Friends of XY. And there are about 600 of these groups around Italy. And they went to him and they said, XY, we agree with what you're saying, but what do you want us to do about it? And he says, I would like you to go back to your communities and improve them. And these young people said, oh, how can we improve our communities? Well, this is when <laughs> zero waste is getting into gear. And up to that point, our audiences for zero waste were people, com communities fighting incinerators. But that was only, a, say, 100 out of 9,000 communities. All of a sudden, there were now hundreds more communities that wanted to hear about zero waste because they wanted to improve their communities. They wanted to move towards su su sustainability. And this, to me, was the transition from the politics of talking, talky, 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 and no one talks more than Italian politicians, talk, 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 saying nothing, to the politics of action. And it was a conversion also from the politics of no, no incineratore to see, see to reusare, see to recicliare, see to compostaggio, see to sustainability. It was a yes movement. It's a very positive movement. And that in turn fed into the five star movement, which eventually put 150 local activists into the Italian parliament. Within a year. Wow. Incredible. Wow. That is incredible. Oh, by the way, the comedian's name, if you want to look this up on the internet, is was Beppe Grillo. Mm -hmm. 
Nyunya keda Nyunya keda Pali guri kena Pali guri Nyangalu Nyanga Mora Pali ngadangana Padakuru Nyamba nyamba Tara Ngolaka Nyanga Mora Palawa muju Garim gari Palawa muju Garingari Abala Pali Kurit Kena Larpama Abala Pali Kurit Kena Larpama Nyundia Walija Panango Manini Kudit karili nyamora Kadiba dara Yanangini Lorpo nyuninyamora Palawa muju karingari Palawa muju karingari Abala bali Puri kena larpama Abala bali Puri kena larpama Abala bali Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. Hello, my name is Fiona York. I'm involved with the Centre for Rural Communities, an organisation that started about 25 years ago, uh, working towards social and economic um, and environmentally sustainable development of rural communities. It's based in East Gippsland, which many listeners will know was devastated by a catastrophic bushfire a couple of months ago. Um, and here we are, less than three months later, dealing with another disaster, the global coronavirus pandemic. So it got me thinking about disaster um, and survival and what makes people and places better able to cope and what do we need to learn from each other as we try to deal with all of these events as they come one after the other. I live in Melbourne now, but I lived in East Gippsland for about 18 years and I still feel very connected to the place. And I know um, from talking to people out there and visiting there often um, that there's so many good, innovative, interesting things that are happening in rural communities. Um, And I wanted to bring some of these stories to the 3CR audience to maybe start or to continue the discussions that people are having in these small, little isolated places all over the place. 
So over the next little while, we're hoping to bring some stories to you from East Gippsland, um, stories about reconciliation, um, community building and arts-led economic recovery, as well as the beautiful environment outside the city, which East Gippsland is so famous for, because there's some really great stuff happening out there and I thought maybe some people would like to hear about it. Um, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to unfold. We're hoping to get some stories through um, over the next little while from people who live in East Gippsland. But in the meantime, I'm going to start with some of the people that I recorded a couple of years ago at a little festival um, called Fruitville. So Fruit, which is spelt F-R-O-U-T-E, F-Root, pronounced fruit, um, began in East Gippsland a few years ago as a project which was producing art related to fruit. And since then, it's grown to this whole movement and it's sparked so many amazing things, um, bringing people together, creating and healing and learning from each other. Um, And probably the most famous, well-known part of that fruit movement is Fruitville, which is a little festival that happens every couple of years. So the people that you're about to hear um, were recorded at that festival at the Nicholson Winery on the grass um, overlooking the beautiful Nicholson River surrounded by grapevines. Um, So let's have a listen. At the moment I'm stewing fruit for Bracky. Just chopping it up as we need it, and a little bit later I'll be making some jam. But I was going to do some fig jam, but the poached figs were so popular that I've kind of used most of them up. We just moved into a new property in Bairnsdale, and it had two massive big fig trees. And I, I don't know, one day I woke up and I realised I could cook with them, and I could eat them, and I could have figs every single day. And that's when I realised kind of what it was all about and that people, other people had trees that they didn't use and I could go and start using their fruit. So it became all about discovering fruit and learning new ways to cook with fruit I hadn't heard of. And then coming and seeing all my new friends and eating fruit. So this is our fruit scene. People have sent recipes for cakes in from all over Gippsland. I made most of the cakes myself and I just took photos of them and put it together in a little format. And I've got some helpers over there right now who are actually cutting and pasting and sticking them all together so we can sell them. But there's a hummingbird cake over there that was supplied by Nina Petrie from Lake Centrance and she's supplied the recipe for the zine and she also brought the cake today. So whereabouts are these oranges from? They're from my garden. Yeah? Yeah, I brought them in this morning. Picked them this morning and um, when I got here and saw how much fruit there was, I was going, you know what, these are really nicely uh, squeezed and drunk. Really I've got a lot of lemons too, and um, I've been trying to get inventive with lemon rinds. Like, what can you do with all this rind? If you're going to juice them, what do you do with all the rinds? So I made um, lemon rind candy, which I forgot to bring. I was going to bring some more. Oh, that sounds see how much. Oh, that's not bad. Thank <laughs> you. 
It's a bit chewy. Would you like that? Absolutely. <laughs> but orange juice should be chewy. <laughs> I was coming here this morning at home in the hills. It was 10 degrees and I was reminded of the cold morning 6 o'clock 20 or more years ago here in the vineyards picking grapes and I wanted to go here since years because they always welcome me and I thought this is amazing that they have to throw a big thing here to lure me here physically. So I was here and I was straight away overwhelmed. There were people from 30 years ago from the yoga classes that I ran. There are children who have become young adults. They all recognize me, but I don't recognize such things anymore because I really forgot to expose myself. And I, I had trouble controlling my emotions. This is uh, an exhibition of life. I get a feeling here, it's all there, but I cut myself off the community and um, maybe I've learned a lesson today. I'm not shaking anymore and I had very warm hugs and friendliness and I'm just a friendly person. Yeah, but you see, I'm not young anymore. Not too far away, I will be 80 and, and then living alone since 20 years, that is good. But the body is slowly giving in now, you know. But that doesn't mean as long as I can walk, get into the car, I can go. It's just you get, you get a little bit lazy too. I get too critical with what is running generally in life. But this is life too. And this could be the big lesson. You know? Yeah. this but life isn't just about surviving and one of the things that people do around here really well is creating something out of very little that celebration um, aspect of, of fruit is is one of the things that I think makes it really interesting and that I like using the word grassroots um, that it is it's bubbling up it's welling up from the material is the people. The material is the lives that people lead, the um, food that they grow, the places that they live, and the conversations that they have around that. That's actually the material of the art. Okay, so that was a little taster from Fruitville. There was quite a bit of ambient noise in the background there. I hope that wasn't. I hope that was okay for you guys. Um, we heard from quite a few people there. Uh, the first person we heard from was Jesse Johns, who was making um, some fig jam and some zines. Um, she's a local East Gippsland artist. There was also Catherine Cunningham making some orange juice and. Um, Sam McElroy, who lives in Tassie now, was the last person that you heard from. 
Um, and Ulla in the middle there, who had a real personal awakening um, at that festival. Um, fortunately, she lost her home in the fires just a couple of months ago. Um, so, yeah, Fruitville happened again this year, just a couple of weeks ago before the lockdown. Um, and this time it was at Clifton Creek, which was absolutely devastated by the fires. They lost their primary school and there's a lot of really traumatised people. But I was there and it was really great to see at the festival how this event really bringing people together. Um, and it's such an important thing for communities um, to be coming together at this time um, and to rebuild after such a huge disaster. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that. Hopefully we'll be able to bring you some more stories from East Gippsland and other rural communities um, in the coming little while. Um, But yeah, until then, stay safe. with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. During the COVID-19 stay-at-home, the refugee issue in Australia has taken on a new edge. 
As we hear from Chris Breen, co-convener of the Refugee Action Collective here in Victoria, there are refugees being held in close quarters in hotels and detention centres who are left to languish in this horrible time. But something really strange happened last week when RAC organised a car cavalcade rally against the holding of refugees at the Mantra Hotel in Preston. The Victorian police swooped, charging Chris Breen with incitement and members of the cavalcade with offences related to the restrictions under force during the COVID-19 epidemic. There are so many issues involved in this story. I'll leave Chris Breen to explain. Okay, we organised a protest calling for the release of the refugees in the Mantra Hotel and for the 1,400 refugees detained across Australia. Uh, The refugees in the Mantra are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. Many of them got underlying, they came here via the Medivac legislation and many have underlying health conditions, diabetes, um, respiratory problems, Crohn's disease, uh, kidney problems, and absolutely no ability to protect themselves or socially distance within the Mantra Hotel. There's 70 of them in the field ward, just one floor of the hotel. It's a huge hotel and they could let them have all the space, but they're in this one area, three to a room, no hand soap. And we called a car uh, convoy protest. So everyone was in cars, uh, one or two people per car, everyone from the same household. Uh, completely safe. And I actually didn't get to attend the protest because the police turned up at my house at 12 noon, two hours before the protest, and arrested me for incitement for being one of the organisers of the protest. I spent um, nine hours in a police cell. Um, The police, well, (coughs) well, (coughs) excuse me, while that happened, the police got a um, warrant and uh, took me back to search my house. Uh, they seized all of my computers, my 15-year-old son's computer, uh, my work computer. I'm a school teacher, so I still, you know, I, my lawyers have made an application to get that back, but I don't have that to prepare for school. My son doesn't have his computer for school. And there's, you know, there was absolutely no need to do all this thing to get the, that for evidence. Everything we have done is public. You know, I put out a media release in my name. My number is on the Facebook page. And um, we're saying that the charge of incitement carries much greater implications, not just for the refugee movement, but for unionists, for uh, climate activists, for social movements. I mean, long after the health laws are gone, the possibility of, say, charging unions um, for inciting industrial action, if that's deemed to be illegal, is, um, is there. So we think it's very important that these charges are... Um, are uh, uh, withdrawn, uh, are beaten. Uh, we also think it's an attempt to intimidate the refugee movement to stop us from calling more protests about the Mantra Hotel. And, I mean, really, the Mantra Hotel, it's like a cruise ship on, on land. It's in these sealed environments where COVID spreads like rapid fire. We've seen in the United States, in one of the big detention centres, there's 16 cases. There's a prison in the United States where 400 have it, and it's a humanitarian disaster. So did they... Did they actually tell you that you were working against the laws that have been put in place to protect people from COVID-19? Yes, they say that I was inciting people to breach the health laws. Uh, We're saying that's not true. 
that our protest was completely safe and that also the Victorian uh, uh, Human Rights Charter of 2006 needs to be read consistently with all of Victoria's laws, including the health laws, and it's not in this case. There is a right to um, political speech. I mean, the, the other thing to point out um, is the, the hypocrisy. It's still legal in Victoria for people to drive hours to their holiday house. George Pell was allowed to drive a 1,000 kilometres when he was um, released. Uh, there was a union convoy, a very good one, calling for no worker to be left behind the day before, which was not stopped from going ahead. They had police come right at the end, but um, not treated in the same way. And a couple of days after our protest, there was a country fire authority uh, convoy for a, a woman's 100th birthday, which was celebrated in the media and had no police presence. So, you know, it's absurd when there's hundreds of people in Bunnings or JB Hi-Fi uh, where we're sealed in our cars, um, just coming from our homes, going back to our homes, driving around the block a few times with our cars decorated to, to get this kind of treatment. Were the police social distancing when they came to see you? <laughs> uh, no. So when the police came to get me, I had to sit in the car with three of them to the Preston Police Station. We then had to wait in that car for about half an hour to get into the police station because there was a bail hearing or something going on. Um. Then uh, on the way, once they got the warrant, I was driven by three other police that I had to be in the same car with back to my house, a 15-minute drive. Once there, there were those police, there were six police in total going through my small house uh, and they weren't social distancing. I mean, perhaps the most ironic thing was on the, the way back from my house to the Preston Police Station, we passed... Um, uh, might have been a dozen people huddled close together outside a fish and chip shop waiting for their fish and chips. <laughs> and the the police the police commented that it's a breach of social uh, you know distancing and kept driving. Now I'm not saying people you know waiting for their fish and chips should be hassled, but the hypocrisy is um, you know obvious. Now other people have been given quite hefty fines as well. They received them in the post. Yeah. So twenty. No. No. Not yet. Um, so 26 uh, activists, uh, or just refugee supporters, uh, all sorts of people, um, had their details taken and told they might get fined in the mail. That hasn't happened as yet. I did get an email from one person who said they got an infringement notice, and I'm still following that up to see if that, um, if that is the case. But uh, there's no, no, they haven't actually been issued and we will be calling on them not to issue those fines. Yeah, okay. And uh, also, uh, it's quite clear that if it was only two hours before it all began, uh, you know, the police were obviously planning what they were doing? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely planning what they were doing. So they wanted to um, arrest, uh, to deal with me as one of the organisers to try and you know, stop the protest. They had undercover police who came to where we were meeting beforehand. They had a huge pre- police presence at the um, Mantra Hotel. It's quite clear that they don't respect the right to protest in any uh, in, in any fashion whatsoever. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, I mean, the, the police, I mean, they'd obviously been planning it. I mean, the guy who, one of the people who interviewed me had quite a smile on my face saying, ah, did you expect all this? Um, I said, no, actually, I didn't. And said, you know, would you have done it anyway? And I it sounded like they had some bet going on with each other. Um, and I said, yes, I would have. But, um, you know, we are proud to incite support for refugees. 
we we don't think we were breaching health regulations and we do think that our protest was uh, completely safe. And in the current circumstance, I mean, it's, it's absurd where it's the detention centres that are unsafe. You know, people have had their lives destroyed, six years on Manus, a year here, now having their lives put at risk. Uh, refugees are protesting every day in the Mantra at Kangaroo Point where there's 150 of them. I mean, at Kangaroo Point, in the meal rooms, they're supposed to line up. There's tape on the ground where they stand. It's only 65 centimetres apart because that's all the space there is. There was a woman in Brisbane who was given a fine um, uh, today or yesterday, no, she's yesterday, sorry, uh, for watching the protest at Kangaroo um, Point. There's been a hunger strike. There's been a, there's people on the roof at Villawood Detention Centre. It's an issue that is not going to go away, and we are calling on Daniel Andrews who says that he is the most progressive premier, the most progressive government in the country, uh, to drop the charge, to not issue the fines, and to finally say something about the refugees. He's had nothing to say. Nothing his to federal say. colleagues, his federal colleagues Jed Carney and Peter Khalil, have um, very uh, welcomely called for the release of the... Um, uh, men in the mantra into the community, and we would call on Daniel Andrews to join those calls. Uh, also, you've got a megaphone uh, petition as well as you need some support as well, don't you? Financial. Uh, yes, if you um, uh, Google uh, car protest or my name, Chris Breen, and megaphone, you'll find our petition. Uh, we also have a sign-on statement that we're asking organisations and prominent people to sign on to that we'll publish in a newspaper. Um, you know, we've got quite a few already. I mean, there's, there's lawyers like Julian Burnside, Robert Richter. There's a lot of doctors who signed it. Um, and if people want to endorse that, they can send uh, the, the statements up on the Refugee Action Collective website and you can send endorsements to Refugee Action Collective, all one word, or lowercase, at gmail.com. Thanks very much, Chris, and good luck. Thank you so much. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Listener, when that septet with the common touch who are, the High Court bench, did themselves proud for the second week in a row, ruling this week that the federal... Sorry, the police had illegally seized information from a journalist's phone, forcing her to give up her password, presumably under threat of life imprisonment or some other small threat of some sort, and given their honour's dedication to the principle of beyond reasonable doubt, as expressed last week, they would have fallen over themselves in their prestigious gowns to ensure the evidence obtained illegally was returned and could not be used as evidence. Just check on that. Oh, no, no, the evidence obtained illegally can be used as evidence. A, a journalist doing her job, well, sort of, she did work for the Lord Rupert Empire, can be convicted on illegally obtained evidence. That, that's so unjust, surely she would have to appeal, appeal to the High Court. Uh, oh, except, of course, the High Court has ruled it's, it's not unjust. And anyway, it's only in the rarest of cases that they overthrow a verdict entirely. And their honours, wise women and men all, exude the common touch. Last week, we commented what a relief to see some common sense entering the discussions around COVID-19 and public policy, that the lockdown was doing intolerable damage to the health 
of the economy. That very sensible quote from John Moody, a usurer, a moneylender, anxious for the health of his economy, or well, the economy, a moneylender would never be selfish. Remember his sensitive, compassionate quote, I wonder how many of the deaths that will be attributed to COVID-19 would have occurred within the next year or two anyway. It's time for our political leaders to take a reality pill before it's too late common sense and a perfect opportunity to eradicate one of the demographic threats to the health of the economy too many oldies use this window of opportunity to get rid of them stroke us and as the public purse picks up the caring employers wages bill the fair work true blue Aussie, no longer work choices just looks like it con mission displayed real common sense when mason architectural joinery real name applied to waive a workers redundancy pay because well it, it simply couldn't afford it the bench ruled the worker entitled to seven weeks redundancy should receive a fabulous one week's pay showing great compassion for mason architectural joinery although not a hell of a lot of compassion for the poor bloody worker literally poor bloody worker but then it's probably a fair decision well it must be after all it's called fair work true blue aussie as the Supremo of the Council of Small Business Profits Organisations, the deep-thinking Peter Strongarm the Workers, called for unfair dismissal to be declared illegal during the lockdown. That is, making it illegal to sue your caring employer for unfair dismissal. Sadly, some people, some conspiratorial long-haired commie people, reckon caring employers could exploit the virus who sadly let go workers they want to sadly let go, but avoid the stress of unfair dismiss the threat of being sued for just being a caring player. As if Peter would have had that in mind. In fact, as evil unions make some concessions, a bit of flexibility on wages, conditions, holidays, that sort of thing, Peter declared the concessions made by unions expose the system's inflexibility. He praised the ACTU for coordinating greater flexibility in some awards to save jobs, but the temporary changes are an admission the current rules don't work. Thus, Peter concluded, we must retain these changes after we come out of this. That link, concessions are an admission, don't waste too much time thinking closely about the logic of that listener because there's none. But Peter was backed up by the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, crushed them, Porter Lou, who said, direct quote, It probably is fair to say that there has been the type of change in three weeks inside the award system that you might otherwise wait 30 years to see. Crush them, of course, would be thrilled that workers are better off 30 years before their time. But importantly, this crisis, these concessions, have exposed just how evil unions and lazy avaricious workers have been exploiting caring employers to the hilt, giving caring employers the evidence they need to resist returning to the norm. And former caring business class party minister and former head of the Chamber of Profits, Peter Handy for the Wealth, called for the government interventions in the private sector to be lifted as soon as possible so the private sector can return what it does so efficiently, like knowing how to handle a crisis, such as, say, um, well, coronavirus, for instance. Uh, so you'll also want the concessions workers have given up to be lifted as well, Peter? Of course not. As my good 
friend Peter Strongarm, the workers, has pointed out, it shows just how seriously lazy, avaricious workers have been crippling their caring employers. And it gets worse. The flat rate, $1,500 a fortnight the government will hand to caring employers to hand to the workers ripping them off, will mean staff will receive a pay increase, forcing caring employers to call for flexibility. There's that word again, flexibility in how they distribute the wage handout. And I'm sure no one who loves and trusts caring employers could see any sort of problem with that. The real problem, as caring employers point out, is that these workers whooping it up on their new fortune might start to get used to being paid. It would be unfair, indeed cruel, to raise the expectations of these workers and submit them to the bitter disappointment of seeing their income decrease if and when we have to go back to paying them ourselves. Typical employer always putting the worker first. Didn't ask Peter Handy the wealth if the government paying the nation's wages bill is one of the interventions he once lifted, but I suspect he'd be happy to let that one hang in. On the passage of the hand the public purse to the private sector bill, truly moving moment as we saw big supremo scuttle them more lash son and economic guru Josh Fry them icebergs rubbing elbows, high whining elbows and looking hysterically happy, which may indicate poor Josh might have just lost whatever reasoning he may have had, which was never much in the first place, because he didn't seem to twig that he'd just seen his budget totally stuffed, go straight down the gurgler. Reasoning run riot as we analyse the great international leadership from the US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trump or the poor who don't say that word ever ever sorry what word who bad bad worst bad bad ever ever yes Donald has frozen funding for the World Health Organisation presumably for leading him astray luring him into a China trap this soft on China organisation which acted too slowly, presumably explaining why Donald acted too slowly. Although Donald didn't act too slowly, it was evil China and the who. See that word, ever, ever. Sorry, sorry. And evil China and the fake news outlets and evil China and the Democrat governors and evil China and Democrat mayors and evil China and Democrats in Congress and evil China and Barack Obama. Don't know how he got into the picture for all his faults, but anyway, he's a major contributor to the pandemic and evil China. Because don't forget, Donald told us just two weeks ago, he was the first person in the whole world to know it was a pandemic. First ever, ever. And if only the, I'll say it so softly, or softly so he won't, uh, won't hear, who had listened to his wisdom, greatest wisdom in the world ever, ever, the Chinese virus would never have occurred. But on the positive side, Donald boasted that the US was leading the world for COVID-19 cases and deaths. Greatest cases and deaths ever, ever. Biggest defeat of evil China ever, ever. Some cynics say Donald's position has to be judged by the day, but, but I feel that's a bit unfair to Donald. Uh, I think by the hour or even the minute.
In one of those minutes, he said he had saved thousands of lives by banning entry from evil China. That is, entry by evil Chinese, not good, good US of citizens who wouldn't have introduced the virus. Hundreds of thousands of lives, he said. And if we are to believe him, as if we'd ever disbelieve him, although we noticed the churches weren't exactly overflowing on Easter Sunday, that day when Donald just loved going to church, with coronavirus but a memory, but if we are to believe him, then the mind boggles at how many would have died without Donald. The other week, when some cities and states were taking steps Donald supported, he said he couldn't interfere because they were autonomous. And this week, when some states and cities are resisting his attempts to return to business as usual, he must think the deaths and incidents of the virus are acceptable, he declared they are not autonomous, and he, as Big Supremo, had all the authority, because I am president of the United States. He announced unnecessarily, greatest president ever, ever. Just think, by this time next year, it'll be either Donald or Joe. Imagine the pencils shaking nervously over the ballot paper with so binary a choice. Divide binary by two and we get bin. Don't know why Donald and Joe remind me of that. Back here, the sorry forces of law and order are delighted that the lockdown has reduced streets to the odd isolated pedestrian. It makes it, you know, like, easier to, like, you know, like, arrest them all, like... Police spokesperson Senior Sergeant Bernie O'Pig told the week that was. Finally, we spoke to real estate rental manager Rick Ripoff about the rental crisis arising from all this. Yes, it's very disturbing. Landlords are really suffering and the poor tenants can't pay. Can't or won't, taking advantage of the situation. But of course, when it's all over, they'll have to pay back every cent of the rent they owe that they've stolen from the poor landlords. And the wages the government is paying for your staff, uh, you'll repay every cent of that, no doubt. Rick? Rick? Oh, dear, he's, he's gone purple. So, sorry, um, what are you trying to say? There, there's, no, there's, there's, no, oh, there's no comparison. OK, fair enough. Good morning. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. To finish off the program, as I promised, we are going to offer up a chat about the United Workers' Union's discussion about future directions out of COVID-19, which puts workers in the centre of the picture instead of the minority interest of the bosses. Don Sutherland sees the arrival of the paper as a big start for workers to organise. Well, Annie, it's great to be talking again. And uh, I think one of the interesting things about these times is we get to... um, uh, stare in stark relief of the difference between socially useful work and socially useless work. And um, just by way of explaining what I mean, I want to say a big hooray for not just for the healthcare workers who deservedly uh, deserve our applause for everything they are doing in the circumstances. Um, they even get praise from the Prime Minister after he's. Uh, either directly done it himself or supported decisions to uh, outsource, downsize, yeah. cut, cut back government support, you know, reduce budgets, all those sort of privatisation. Exactly, yeah. So despite all of that, they're those, you know, healthcare workers doing an amazing job, really socially useful work. The other really important people in all of this, of course, are food production and supply workers, food and water. I mean, nobody can do anything without their daily intake of food and water. And, and the whole society cannot reproduce itself 
unless there is the daily production and reproduction of food and water supply. And those workers are still out there doing that. And they're doing it under enormous pressure. And in, in, many, in many locations, in many factories, where the employer has still not voluntarily introduced proper health and safety standards for safe methods of work in the context of the COVID-19 virus. So a big hooray to all of the food production workers, particularly from the, the, you know, the working farmer through to the harvesters and the factory workers and the, and the workers who drive the trucks, the workers who repair the machines that break down from time to time, and the electricity supply workers who make sure the factories operate and so on. Turning to the socially useless workers, or they're not even workers, but socially useless, you can't go further than the stock exchange, can you? No, that's right. And what, hap and what happens in the share market? And uh, without going on about it, everything that Jerry Harvey has been recommending about buying low and selling high, and Twiggy Forrest has actually been doing in practice, making gazillions, basically, by doing pretty well nothing, and certainly nothing that is of practical use to the mass of the population. Socially useless. There was a fantastic quote about Twiggy Forrest. It was, uh, taking philanthropy to the height of sociopathy. <laughs> yes, well, I think he is a desperado for being loved, I think. I think the main thing, however, having said all of that, and there are so many angles we can talk about it from the point of view of workers, is, you know, what is being planned? What are the possibilities for when uh, the virus is overcome? And I think there's lots of questions there. Uh, uh, one of them, of course, is will people be encouraged to consent to going back to work before the virus is under control. In other words, an illusion is created that it's under control and we uh, accept what's being told to us from the government and we drift or stagger or whatever it is back to work. Uh, that's one of the questions. And then what health and safety standards are going to be applied at that point? And we just have to say, that everything that every worker does as they get closer to that point of a return to work must focus upon their health and safety rights, their membership of the union, so that they can make sure those health and safety rights are as tight as a drum in the workplaces that they return to. The, the other bigger question, of course, is you know, what in general is going to occur? And the, the three words from the ad man, uh, from Morrison, uh, snap back, wind back, or uh, I call it stagger back. He says, you know, a staggered approach to returning to work. Well, he knows all about staggering because he staggered into the first stimulus package, which was pretty soon, within a couple of days, shown to be inadequate. So he staggered on to the next one, and that pretty quickly turned out to be in inadequate also. And then he staggered into the third one against his own will, dragged there by the agreement worked out between the unions and the employers. And that, of course, was the JobKeeper program. So Morrison wants a return to normalcy. Some things he wants in terms of the normalcy before the pandemic, he will want very quickly. So that's snapback. Winding back and staggering back are the things that he wants back that were there it, during the pre-pandemic normalcy, but which he knows will be a little bit more difficult either because of the virus itself or because of the political implications. So, for example, 
the doubling of the job seeker allowance, what was New Start, of course, reducing that back to where it was beforehand will not be simple for him. He'll want to do it, but he can't snap back to it because there'll be too many people who were in that huge rush that occurred a couple of weeks ago and who he likes to see as part of his own constituency. He's got to be very careful how he plays that. And so that's what he means when he's talking Weinbach and Stuggerback. How will things pan out during that period? Well, that's going to depend a lot on what we do. And that's where I think, when I say we, I mean the broader, not just the union movement, but all of the other dozens of organisations of the people. So, for example, the mass campaign around the Uluru Statement and uh, Aboriginal people and their allies uh, who are struggling around closing the gap, trying to make that a better deal than what our Aboriginal peoples have been getting. And then secondly, of course, uh, the anti-poverty network is a big deal there, housing organisations. So all of the people's organisations, how things pan out afterwards will depend on how well they get organised as a cohesive group, not just in silos. We've got roughly three to six months to mature out of that immaturity, silo campaigns, and that's into a more coherent strategy of people's organisations, including unions and all those other types of non-union people organisations. And that, of course, overlaps with the mass desire for some form of just transition away from uh, carbonised energy uh, production and supply and so on. So that's where the United Workers' Union draft workers' plan is so important. The one that was led off by Tim Kennedy as the National Secretary of the United Workers' Union. And I know there's been, there is more and more discussion beginning to happen, but it's nowhere near enough because it's our first sort of sign from a very influential union that organises workers who are close to the poverty line, who are migrant workers. I think it's worthwhile if we've got the time just to go through some of its features. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, well, if you look at, if, if you look at the content, it, it also amounts to the opportunity to get popular support, big support, for a very different way of seeing how the economy could, could be well, run. Could be run, yeah. could, How it could be structured and how it could, could be run. So both its structure and its overall dynamic as well. So just to skip through, there's the three major things. It's called the workers' plan to survive the COVID-19 crisis, no layoffs, income guarantee, tax relief, and rent and mortgage freezes. Yeah. And after that, there's a preamble that I won't go into. And then there are three sections. The first section is called What Australian Workers Need. This is just covered in just over a page. It deals with a jobs guarantee to be upheld by all employers, an income guarantee payment of $748 a week, which is, of course, the minimum wage as it currently stands, the national minimum wage, and that, that really is a more progressive way of uh, defining what we almost have with the uh, job seeker payment. No, job keeper payment. Uh, sorry, excuse me, the job keeper payment. I think well there's done. a deliberate ruse to make those two uh, <laughs> I agree with that too. 
Yeah. And then the third part of this first section is about a provisional tax-free threshold to increase uh, uh, to be increased from $18,200 to $25,000. And what a difference that would make for the lowest income earners in the country. Oh, yeah. There's the moratorium on rent and mortgage payments. Now, that part is silent about the annual uh, wage review. And I think that's a weakness. All right. But I, conceptually, just, you know, just look at those things. The second part is called what our country needs. And so it's our country now. And the first thing, and this is this is so good because it really does elevate an anti-racist stance by emphasising the rights, what ought to be the rights of migrant workers. And so there's a visa amnesty for migrant workers. There's Medicare access extended to everybody, including visa holders and undocumented workers. And there's a commitment to zero tolerance for xenophobic nationalist type attacks on migrants. The third section is called what our economy needs. And this is also really good in the sense that it draws a link between the crisis we're in, inflamed by the COVID-19 virus and climate change. It says new renewable energy generation and export infrastructure. Don't bail out essential sectors, buy them. There's no difference in the price. So why not? Uh, And bring public goods back into public ownership. And then the third part is bail out necessary industries only. So don't bail out essential sectors, buy them. Bail out necessary industries only with strict conditions. And this is where we get to the democracy part, with strict conditions of worker co-determination and ethical labour and environmental standards. Now, I think all, all of those things deserve to be read and discussed. Now, before uh, you move on, there were yeah. a couple of things that were important uh, in all that, uh, besides the detail. The fact that they actually, their headings are what workers need, what the country needs and what the economy needs, I think it, be- it bears comment that they make it clear that they are three different interests. They're not the same, that the economy is not the national interest per se, or that the uh, business class's interests are not necessarily the workers' interests. These are constantly being muddied, and it's one of the things that I found really upsetting about the way the, uh, uh, the money has been distributed to workers. Yes, and I think, uh, I think your point about what it's saying is that it, it, it's saying all the way through in each section is that there is an alternative plan for the future, including the immediate future, that is worker orientated and not employer orientated. Yeah. And and that's and so the detail, the initial detail. Now all of those points need a bit more flesh. As I mentioned, there's nothing in there about the annual wage review. I mean, it is called uh, a discussion paper. Exactly, and that's it. That I really, I think that is a very canny thing for the union to be doing and i come back to there's a bit of history behind all of that that's quite interesting by the way the 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 second thing it doesn't do it doesn't say anything about closing the gap which is i think the single if within all of the problems we have with rising inequality that ought to be at the forefront for all of us is to be thinking about closing the gap because it is the big historic task from the point of view of 
being able to win battles that reverse inequality and create a more equal society. Oh, and also a more coherent country. It's interesting yes. you should bring this up because uh, before all this COVID happened, I went to the uh, climate summit that they had at yes. the Town Hall. Yes. I was really nonplussed by the fact that the uh, First Nations session was it was off the main stage. Yes, now, yes. I found that really peculiar. I, I, I recorded it and found it absolutely fascinating because it's the core to everything. Everything has to start from there, but it's always been relegated to off the main stage. It's, it, it, for the majority white population and also migrant workers, this is the way we uplift our solidarity. It is, it is the test of how, far, how much progress we are making with solidarity, how seriously we escalate the uh, closing the cap demands that are being articulated by uh, a, a number of different First Nations organisations. Uh, so uh, there are some, you know, there, conceptually I think this is a great thing from the UWU, this program, but it's got some weaknesses in detail that undermine it a little bit in terms of concept. The other thing it doesn't talk about, for example, in terms of you know the big question a lot of people go ask is, well, who's going to pay? Well, we can bet that Morrison and company are working with the Business Council to work out a plan so that the working class, the 90%, will pay over a number of years for what they've spent. Oh, yeah. Well, there is, a, there is an alternative. Uh, what we know from the official reports of the Australian Tax Office 1917-18 is the top 100 corporations in Australia underpaid income tax by about $550 million, uh, billion. I was going to say it was billion, wasn't it? A billion, yes. And that's double. That's one year. That's double what has been spent on the three stimulus packages. I was going to say, and you know the thing is that if we have to pay for it anyway... Why don't we just take it? Yeah. Well, I'm with you on that too. I think the big thing for us now, as I say, is to grab hold of this and escalate the discussion. And I know for a fact that there are people who have been working on the future of manufacturing. What should, you know, what should an Australian manufacturing industry should look like? Some of them have been working on this issue for 30 years. And some of them are academics and some of them are union activists and some of them are workers who just ask the right questions. The most logical question about why we can't have a far more powerful manufacturing base, given that we dig the resources out of the ground or the ocean floor, and then we don't have to take them very far to a factory which can transform them into something more sophisticated for sale both internationally and domestically. That's a very basic question that most workers just wonder about and they can't work out why it hasn't been done. Yeah, yeah, well, but the reason, the reason that it's not been done is because the uh, an international monetary system gets, gains profit out of the globalisation that they've put into place. There's more profit for the extracting corporations yeah. in being able to sell offshore than there is in Australia. What, what that, people need to realise yeah. is that they, we actually need a new political and a new economic system if you wanted to be logical. And, and that's what this document does, is it invites us to start grappling with what that might mean. And two points just to finish on. 
about 1978, the then Amalgamated Medical Workers and Shipwrights Union put out a 16-page pamphlet. It's one of the great uh, workers' movement, Australian workers' movement uh, pamphlets and campaigns ever. It featured 16 pages of diagrams and text. The diagrams included cartoons by the great Bruce Petty. Oh. Uh, and the text was plain language text reinforced by these startling diagrams, some of them really cutting edge for their time, Who that explained it? what was going on. It was written by two or three people. That t it was conceived by uh, Laurie Carmichael and in discussions at the National Council of the Union. And the text, much of the research in the text was done by two or three people, uh, including uh, a fellow called Ted, the late Ted Wilshire, and also I think a 90-year-old now, Steve Cooper. Uh, I think he was involved as well, from what I understand. What's it called? So those, it's, it was called Australia Uprooted. Now here's the thing: the last three pages uh, started. The, the, the third last page started with "How can we stop them?" And the, <laughs> and, and what flowed from that was a three-page People's Economic Program. The, the, the three major themes were maintenance of full employment, protection of the environment. This is 1978. And thirdly, the progressive reduction of working hours. Then, over the page, there is flesh for those three concepts, all laid out as an alternative to what the Fraser government was enabling the mining corporations to do at that time. And at the heading was this. I'm going to read it out. Join in, exclamation mark, help to develop this people's economic program. So the idea was there. The idea was there that this was, this was uh, the bare bones. It had some, no, quite, not quite the bare bones. There was some flesh on the bones, but it was inviting workers through their unions and other organisations at that time to help put together a more comprehensive uh, program and movement that would fight for it. Uh, and there's a history that then flows from that, which is another discussion altogether. So what the UWU has done here in 2020 in the context of a crisis is has its prehistory as well and it's I think the UW can be very proud with what it has brought to the fore at this time. Annie, I don't think right now very many people understand that what we do in the next six months is going to define what life will be like for 90% of the population for the next six to ten years. I think so too. So if there is, a, if there is no mass movement around this, pro, this type of program, whether it's these specific words or improvements on them. If there is no mass movement, then it's going to be a very, very slow hell for the majority of the population for six to ten years. If, however, there is a mass movement that is developed in the next six months, that is developed through education and communication, developed to the point where it can do online actions that have an impact and attract more people into the movement, ultimately turning into good old-fashioned confrontation with the powers that what, what Morrison wants to deliver, then uh, if we elevate that 
then in the next six months, so there is a sense of urgency now about the next six months. If we can do that, then we are going to be in a much better position than we otherwise would be. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. If you want to find out more about Dr Paul Connett, his book, The Zero Waste Solution, Untrashing the Planet, One Community at a Time, is published by Chelsea Green Press. To support Chris Breen, go to the Refugee Action Collective website and to find out more about the UWU discussion paper, look out for it on their webpage. Until next week, look after yourself, keep safe. You'll hear from me next week.